Welcome back to Bootability, a weekly interview series about the amazing ability people have to change our lives and the world if we're brave enough to tap into it. I'm your host, Jihi Jolly. Today's episode is about imposter syndrome, or feeling like you don't deserve success or happiness. Technically, imposter syndrome is not an actual psychiatric disorder, but studies show that imposter feelings are experienced by 70% of people at some point in their life. These feelings can be caused by internal factors like personality traits and external factors such as the environments we experience as well as institutionalized discrimination. However it shows up in your life, Feeling like you don't belong or don't deserve success or happiness is something that Buddhism directly addresses. Because in essence, chanting Nam Myo Ho Renge Kyo is the ultimate affirmation of the dignity of each person's life. And the purpose of practicing Buddhism is to develop a state of genuine happiness, both for ourselves and others. Today's episode addresses all this and more. Our guest today is Aide Aguirre a young woman who started practicing Buddhism at the age of 24, about seven years ago. After battling a lifetime of feeling like she couldn't accomplish all she wanted to, which began with her experience of being undocumented in the U.S. as a child, Aide started chanting simply to generate hope for her own life. She actually spoke on a recent Buddhability clubhouse, which is how I discovered her story, about getting sick from COVID in December last year and the series of events that unfolded because of it. Being sick caused her to ask herself big questions. Had she pursued all her dreams? Would she have any regrets? This led her to apply to graduate school, a dream she had put off for reasons we'll unpack on today's episode. Ultimately, she recovered, she got into school, and found a way to pay for it. All results of the efforts she made through chanting and taking action to value her own life, no matter what her past had been. Here's Aide. So um, my name is Aide, and I am 33 years old. And I'm calling from Southern California, specifically the San Fernando Valley. Awesome. And is that where you're from originally? That's where um, I've I've lived here since I was two. Um, Before I was born in Mexico and I came here with my mom um, when I was two years old. So I've been living in the San Fernando Valley most of my life. Okay, got it. Um, And so uh, I always like to start by getting a little bit of just like background so we can understand you a little bit more um, on how you grew up. And I I know that we spoke earlier about how there was a lot going on there. So whatever you're comfortable sharing is totally fine. But can you just tell me yeah, a little bit about kind of like how you grew up and what you envisioned for your future or didn't, honestly, either way? Yeah, I I think... That's such a great question because I've been thinking about that a lot lately, just how I grew up. And um, I would say that when it was happening, I don't think I was fully aware of what was really going on. And I didn't fully understand it like I do now as an adult. But I grew up undocumented. Um, My mom and I um, crossed the U.S.-Mexico border and um, we came to live here. My dad was already living here. He had been here for two years at that point. And um, it was, I would say that I don't remember too much feeling like a child. I always felt a little bit like an adult. And Mm -hmm. um, growing up undocumented was really difficult emotionally 
and also just um, on, at a, like your day-to-day life is very different. And I didn't know that until now that I'm older that I've met people that didn't grow up that way. I actually thought that was normal. Mm-hmm. And um, so we didn't really go out too much. We didn't really leave our house too much. Um, I know I didn't realize or I didn't know I was undocumented until I was in school um, when I was in first grade. And I knew because my classmates, one of my classmates told me, and I don't know how he found out or what maybe his mom and my mom talked and maybe that's how he knew. But um, he told everybody in my classroom and I didn't know. Mm -hmm. It was really scary because I think when you're six and in first grade, you don't want to stand out. You want to, you want to fit in. I think most of our lives we want to fit in, especially when you're little. And I remember that the day he told my classmates, I felt like this huge hole in my stomach because I didn't know what that meant. I just meant that it, I just understood that it wasn't good because of the reaction they were having. Mm. And I remember my classmate, a few of my classmates were like, why don't you go back to Mexico? And I was like really confused and like really scared because I I didn't, I was like, what does that mean? And they, another one of my classmates was saying that my mom and I were going to have to go away and we were going to be separated. And them saying that I should go back to Mexico was really scary because at that point I, I didn't even know I wasn't born here in the United States. And I didn't know that I had lived somewhere else. And so I went home and I asked my mom and my mom um, told me that I was born in Mexico and that we had come to the United States when I was two. And she told me um, we're undocumented. So basically we're not um, supposed to be here. Um, There's a whole process and um, I we're trying to figure out how to um, go through that process right now, but your dad and I don't really know too much and it's a lot of money. And I remember immediately feeling really stressed out and really worried and just thinking now everybody in my school knows because if my whole classroom knows and other people are going to know. And I started to immediately, um, I think that's when like my anxiety first began when I was a child and I remember going back to school um, the next day and hearing the same things from my classmates. And a lot of my classmates, their parents were English speaking and my parents um, only speak Spanish. And so a lot of those things started surfacing. Like, your why don't your parents speak English? That's mm-hmm. why you should go back to Mexico. And why... Um, you know, why is your skin so dark? That's why you should go back to Mexico. And then I remember at the end of that week, I was, I tried to stand up for myself because I think I've always had that. Even when I was little, I've had that like nature to like stand up for what's right. Even though I didn't know that that's what it was, what it was. I remember that I, I, um, said to one of my classmates, I told him, I'm not going to go back to Mexico. I'm going to stay here because this is where my family is and I'm going to um, do great things one day. And then I remember he looked at me and he was like really upset. And then him and a couple other of my classmates actually picked me up and they 
they put me in a locker. Like they shoved me in a locker. And I remember thinking like, I could never do anything great. And I could never like really um, be who I thought when I made that comment to him, when I told him I'm gonna stay here and I'm gonna do great things. I remember when they shoved me in the locker and I was really little, like I've always been really short. So I think that um, I was like really constrained. And I remember my knees being really close to my face because I was shoved in there and they closed the door. And I remember thinking I couldn't even cry because I, I was thinking I could never do anything great. And that feeling like really took over my, my body and I think my mind. And I remember that I didn't even try to get out. I didn't cry. I didn't ask for help. I just stayed there. And it's kind of like that moment. I really believed that that's where I belonged. And later when um, they let me out, they came back and they let me out. And um, I remember I went home and I told my mom and my mom was really upset. And she came to the school and um, the school just wouldn't do anything about it. And around that time, there was um, a law in California. I remember it was Prop 187. And people had to report undocumented people, like if you went to the hospital or if you went. And I remember that my mom was talking to um, the principal, I think, at the time, and my teacher. And somebody made a comment about how it would be better if we don't make a big fuss about this because we are undocumented. And we could easily be reported. Hmm. And so I remember my mom, my, the look on my mom's face of, she also felt what I felt when I was in that locker, which is like, I, I imagine, I, that's what I, how I interpreted that. She felt like she could never do anything great. It, it was this feeling of, even if you speak up for what's right, and even if you are right, or because we're undocumented and because we have to live you know, kind of like in, a sh- in the shadows and always hide. You can't, there's nothing you can do about mm-hmm. this situation. So that really stayed with me my whole life. Like um, that experience as a, as a six-year-old. Oh my goodness. Wow. Thank you for sharing that also so openly. Um, I can only imagine, honestly, how you must have been feeling you put it into words so well, but even I, I, I imagine you can't even really put into words the entirety of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me think what's the best way to ask this. I guess based on experiences like that first formative one that you described, how did you think about your own future? You You mentioned that you felt like, okay, I can't do anything great. So sort of what had you resigned yourself to or what had you sort of thought your life was going to turn out to be like? Yeah, I, um, I resigned myself to the idea that even if I, for example, did great academically, I could never really be recognized for it because of my status. And I could never really, um, have the same opportunities. So I have always been a straight A student since I was in elementary. And I actually used, now looking back, I know that I really used like books and my homework as a way to further hide because I, I, I wanted to be invisible. 
I I didn't want to be noticed and I didn't want anybody to really um, know that I was undocumented. So I just really hid in my books. And I was a straight A student. And I remember in elementary school, many years later, I there we had to there was an essay contest about what do we want to be when we grow up. And I remember thinking, I'm going to write this of like what I w- would want to do if I wasn't undocumented. And um, even the thought, even the fact that I could have that thought to me now looking back makes me feel an even bigger sense of um, justice for people that think they have to live that way. Because I, I don't think that being a fourth grader and having the thought of like, I can't do anything, but if I if I wasn't undocumented, this is what I would do. But I wrote an essay about wanting to be a doctor, and wow. my essay won the entire contest of the whole school. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, and then um, I there was a scholarship that came with it, but I couldn't receive it because I was undocumented, mm-hmm. and um, and so. I met a te- I had a teacher who like really her name was Miss Dominguez. She really believed in me. And she pushed and pushed and pushed the principal to give me some kind of recognition because she was just not having the fact that I wasn't getting the scholarship. She was like, no, that's not okay. And so my principal had me read my essay in front of the whole school. Oh my <laughs> at, gosh. At, the, at an assembly, a special assembly. Um, I had to read it and um I remember they had me write it in English and Spanish, so I had to read it in both. And then at the end, my principal had submitted my name for like an, a National Academic Excellence Award. And so they, I received a, a certificate signed by President Clinton at the time, who was the president at the time, um, for academic excellence. And so um, what, when that happened and I saw my teacher really fight on my behalf, I think that's when I really started thinking there could be something more um, beyond me being undocumented. Like there could be something more. Like I want, I wonder like what can come of this in my life. And so um, I continued to be a straight A student because I wanted to just do everything I could in my power to prove to myself that I, that I could do something. And so I, um, I didn't know exactly what, what I wanted to do when I grew up. Like I knew I wanted to be a doctor. That was something that I knew. And it was because that maybe that was the only career I knew about from TV was mm-hmm. the doctors. And um, I continued on that path of, of always working really hard and, and trying my best. And so um, that's how I... Um, towards that path to go to college. Mm. Wow. Oh, my goodness. And yeah, I just I, I feel like when you speak, I can see your younger self in you. <laughs> like it feels I don't know if that's a weird thing to say, but I it's like I, I feel like, um, yeah, just this like uh, amazing honesty. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm sure it's probably been interesting to like think back to all these memories. <laughs> um so I'm I'm wondering so that when you so you basically it sounds like what you're saying is that over the course of school because you did well in school you have this sort of like competing tension 
knowing that you're doing well and that you have this dream and then also having to carry this sort of burden of, well, what are the things I'm not going to be able to do because of my status? Mm -hmm. So when you finally um, did get to college, I remember when we spoke on the phone, you said you struggled with sort of a very intense feeling of imposter syndrome. Can you tell me about that? Like, how is the journey to get to college? What did you end up studying and how did that experience feel? Yeah. I think that looking back now, um, I recently wrote about my experience um, with imposter syndrome and I was able to trace it back to my childhood. And from the moment that I found out I was undocumented, I think that's when I began to feel like an imposter. Mm-hmm. I, I be- that feeling of um, I don't deserve things. And when I do well, clearly there's, there's all these like clear systems telling me like when I won that scholarship, but I couldn't have it because I wasn't documented. It was these really clear reminders of like, these are your limits. You don't have a life that's limitless. You don't have like a limitless potential. Your potential is literally measured by this system. And so very fortunately, my mom and I were able to um, become US residents when I was 14. Um, And that was that whole process in and of itself was very difficult. And yeah, the way that people are treated is just very, it's very awful. And um, so when I was in high school and I was now a U.S. resident, I felt a little more confident. But at the same time, I was struggling with this guilt of I know there's other people in my family that aren't documented that now that are going to continue to be undocumented because there isn't a path for them for citizenship. And here I am now, like, why am I different? Why do I have this opportunity? Like, how am I deserving of this? And um, so again, I focused on being the best student that I could be because I was hiding from that. And it was like you were saying this conflicting thing of like, Now I can do more, but at the same time, like, how am I deserving of this? And also, I still um, experience a lot of discrimination just because of the color of my skin. And most people can't pronounce my name or my last name. And it was really scary, but I ended up um, going to UC Berkeley for for my undergrad. And... um, that's where I think a lot of the things I hadn't dealt with when I was a child because I was hiding in my books and in my studies I was like faced with immediately from my very first day of college and what I mean by that is that I remember stepping into my very first class which was a political science class and there were about 300 students and I sat down and I couldn't find one more person of color in my classroom and it was a pretty big auditorium and 300 people is a lot. Oh and gosh. I remember sitting there like shrinking into my chair, just really like thinking, I don't belong here. Why am I here? Like, and my professor was actually talking about affirmative action. And he was talking about how um, affirmative action is such a debated topic. And 
on day one, we were talking about that. And I remember a lot of my classmates like being so passionate about why they don't believe in it and why the prestige of the university is going down because we're accepting these people that are not qualified to be there. And I remember thinking they're talking about me and um, I don't belong here. And um, the next day I had to go to my discussion section for that class and it was led by a graduate student and we had to introduce ourselves. And I did what I've always done my entire life, which is say, hi, my name is Ivy," and nobody can understand it or People are always like, what is it? How do you spell it? How do you say it? We went through that for like five minutes and it was, I was really red and really uncomfortable because everyone was looking at me. And the graduate student said, have you ever considered changing your name to something more American? And I was like, no. And then he's like, why not? Or a name that can be pronounced in English because this doesn't make any, nobody can say your name. So I just don't know how you would live a life like that. And I, again, like shrunk into my seat and knew like, I don't belong here. I was accepted here because, you know, it's a fluke or there's a certain amount of people that have to be accepted um, that are people of color. And that's why I was accepted. And I can't, I don't belong here. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I, my name, nobody can pronounce my name and just going back to that feeling of, I just want to be invisible again. Wow. Oh my goodness. And so yet you graduated in four years, you got through Berkeley. Yes. Wow. And what did you study? I majored in American studies, which is an interdisciplinary major and you get to choose your focus. Mm -hmm. So I focused, my focus was in education and public policy. And I was studying, my research was based on military presence in low-income high schools of color versus military presence in schools that were predominantly white and um, where both parents went to college. And so that's really when I started diving into um, education. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. Um, yeah. I'm having so many thoughts and I want to ask you so many, so many questions, but I'm trying to think what the most, uh, mo most uh, kind of efficient path through this. Cause I, there's just so many aspects of your story that I feel like we could speak for hours. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it just sounds like to me, you know, I mean, based on all of the episodes you've shared and it's just a, a few from different ages, um, that you really were carrying around this, like, I, I really can't do anything. And yet, it's basically the opposite of what Buddhism teaches. So I'm so curious to know how you were able to even accept this idea, like, Nam Myoho Rengekyo is the ultimate affirmation of someone's unlimited potential, mm -hmm. which honestly sounds like it's difficult for anyone to believe, but for someone who's been communicated the exact opposite of that most of their life. I, What was your experience of learning about the Buddhist philosophy and, yeah, I guess accepting it or, or taking it on? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that aspect of like practicing Buddhism, the Buddhism, the Buddhist philosophy of everyone is equal. Everyone possesses 
unlimited potential and everyone can become happy just as they are. That to me was like mind blowing. I remember the first time I heard it, I like sat with it for a really long time, just really thinking like, are you sure? (laughs) Does that apply to everybody? (laughs) Um, But really asking that question because I couldn't believe it about myself. Like that's really what I wanted to ask. Like the people that introduced me to Buddhism and the first neighborhood meeting I went to, I remember like, I really wanted to ask like, how do you know for sure that I have, have this unlimited potential without knowing me, right? Like, you don't know, you don't know me. How do you know that? Mm -hmm. And so um, when I began chanting, I began this, what, what I now see as this beautiful journey, I think in the moment, I think I was experiencing a lot of pain because ultimately that's how we transform our lives by facing whatever it is we're feeling whatever it is that's making us suffer, whatever it is that's like causing you to question this inner potential. And for me, it was, I don't know that I will ever believe that. And I don't know if that's true to me about me and so I began chanting and so many things began to surface about my childhood um about how I really felt about myself that I hadn't really been able to share with anybody how I really felt about myself since I was a child I never shared it with my parents because I didn't want them to feel guilty or to feel upset or to be sad and I never shared it with anybody growing up. I never shared it with an adult when, how I felt when I was in college and I was going through all these things, I never shared it either. So I had only shared it with myself. And at that moment, when I began chanting, I felt like I could no longer ignore it. I could no longer ignore it because it was coming out of my life. And I, for the first time, felt this immense sense of hope. And I remember like one of my very first goals that I wrote because when we practice Buddhism, we always talk about writing down our goals so that we can really see how our practice works. And so I wrote down, I want to believe in my Buddha nature. Mm -hmm. And um, so much came out of my life because of that. So I think like, tears and tears, endless tears that I hadn't cried my whole life because I I hadn't faced it and I was so scared. But this time I felt I'm scared, but I also feel hope. And that to me was like one of the most beautiful moments because I think my whole life I was going on in a teeny tiny ounce of hope. And for the first time I felt like I found this like limitless source of hope. Whereas my whole life, I was going on a tiny string of hope. And I had to carry that tiny string on my own. And it felt so heavy. And now I found this like, limitless source of hope. Wow, that's such a beautiful way to put it. I wish I could have been there to sort of witness those first days. And yeah, the I I can only imagine what the process must have felt like. But um, just to have the context when and like what was going on at the time that you encountered Buddhism and decided I'm going to start practicing and then from there we'll start to unpack the rest of the story yes so um two years before I encountered Buddhism my mom suffered a massive stroke 
And I happened to be home because I had just graduated from college and I hadn't started working yet. And she wasn't home alone um, because of that. And so my mom was only 46 at the time, but it was still very physically devastating. And she was lost function in the right side of her body. She lost the ability to speak. Um, she, it was a lot. It was a, it was a very massive stroke and she was in the hospital. And from that experience, I developed a really deep depression that I didn't really deal with because I was functioning very highly. And because, um, I'm the oldest of four and, um, my mom doesn't speak English. And so I was with her, um, in the hospital and every doctor visit. And I took care of her because my dad, um, he couldn't take time off from work and he, um, he entrusted me with this responsibility to really take care of my mom and be her advocate. And so I was dealing with depression, but not really dealing with it because I was in charge of all these things for my mom. And so at that time I began working a part-time job and, um, a person from work had shared at a staff meeting that they practice Buddhism. And I remember that stood out to me because um, she shared that she had been practicing Buddhism for 30 years. And it, it just, honestly, what stood out to me was because, was that she um, is Guatemalan. And I remember that's the first thing that stood out to me that I thought I'm, I don't know enough about Buddhism, but I think that I only understand it from like a historical standpoint mm -hmm. that it's practiced in Asian countries. I had never, I never thought that people that of other backgrounds would practice Buddhism. And that's actually what made me remember that she practiced. And so um, in those two years from the time I first heard her share it, and she just shared it very generally. She just said she's been practicing Buddhism for 30 years and she's really happy. Um, in the course of two years, I was always in her office because she was my direct supervisor at the time. I was always in her office crying about something, <laughs> whether it was work-related or personal. or I somehow always gravitated to talk to her about it, even when it wasn't work-related. And one day she just um, started talking about practicing Buddhism more openly. And she said, she told me, I chant Namyo Horenge Kyo. And that was, so that was the first time I, I heard the, the practice part of it. Like, I think I imagined it very differently. And so when she told me she chanted Namyo Horenge Kyo, then I started to develop an idea of like, there's a natural practice. You do something every day. And um, she had a book on her desk um, called The Buddha in Your Mirror. And I saw it every day on her desk. And one day I just picked it up and I turned it around to read what it was about. And I, I opened it and I probably read like three pages and I asked her if I could borrow it. And she said, of course you can borrow it, take it home. And you don't, don't worry about giving it back to me anytime soon. Take, take it for as long as you'd like. And so I um, took it home and I read it in like a week and it's a pretty long book. I just, I couldn't put it down. <laughs> I, everything I talked about really resonated with me. And I started chanting on my own because in the book it teaches you how to chant um, <laughs> and how to um, enunciate Nam Myoho Kyo. And so I began chanting on my own every day before going to work. 
And like on the on the seventh day of chanting, I thought I'm when I go to work today, I'm gonna ask her how I can learn more about Buddhism and how I can start practicing. And if, if she says I can't, it's okay. I'm not gonna worry about it. I'm gonna just come home and I'll chant some more. And um, I went to work and I was kind of like nervous and I waited for the exact, like for absolutely the end of the day to ask her. And I, and I asked her, how can I learn more and how can I start practicing Buddhism? And then she like literally jumped from her chair, like super high up and was like, oh my gosh, yes. Like I'll, I'll connect you um, where you live so we can find a neighborhood meeting by, by where you live so you can go and you can learn some more. And um, that Sunday I went to my very first um Buddhist meaning. That's amazing. And so, okay, so you said you were um, 24 at the time. So this was basically in the couple of years post-college when you were yes. supporting your mom and then you encountered Buddhism. Got it. Yes. Okay. Um, so so you started chanting. I mean, this the, your description of hope is so, so beautiful. And um, I'm just thinking from the perspective of someone who maybe feel similarly for whatever their own reasons, you know, and they're like, okay, so it, it seems like this practice can help me generate something I'm not able to generate or haven't been able to generate in terms of believing in myself and my own potential for so long. Um, but Buddhism is also very much about action, right? So you start chanting, you start, I guess, studying this philosophy and like dialoguing with people in your local group. But how did your sort of vision for your own life start to change and what kind of action steps, action or steps did you take next in terms of like bigger goals, whether they're career or family related or anything else? Yeah. I think part of the reason why I began practicing while well, I still practice Buddhism and I imagine always practicing and I want to share it with the people that I meet is because it is about taking action. And the very first step I think is taking action for yourself. And I know sometimes nowadays, I know I hear this from a lot of younger people or people my age, this idea of um, wanting to take care of yourself first, or I don't wanna care for the world because the world is a certain way and I'm gonna only worry about myself. And I think that in Buddhism, there's this beautiful idea of like, when you help other people, you help yourself, actually. And when you help someone else become happy, you become happy, actually. And so um, when I began practicing, and for anybody who is dealing with imposter syndrome at any point in their lives, I felt for me, what was really refreshing was that I could take action to change it. And the first action was to chant Nami Ohorenge Kyo. And while I was doing that, to do it just as I am. Um, I wasn't necessarily thinking just yet of who do I want to be, but I was in the space of like, I want to embrace myself just as I am right now. And if, you know, I have all this anger and frustration and sadness and fear, and I want to transform that into a vision for my life. And so taking action first was to chant Nami Ohorenge Kyo, but also to engage with other people. I think my whole life I had become this person that wanted to be invisible and wanted to just hide. And I began engaging in conversations with other people 
not only about Buddhism, but just hearing other people's life stories and embracing human beings for who they are. And of course, I always want to share about Buddhism. And I I always want people to know that they too can chant but at the essence is to listen to another human being who is suffering too, but in a completely different circumstance or from a completely different background than mine. But at the essence, they're also not able to see their inner potential and they're also not able to see their bootability. Yeah, that is an, actually an aspect of the practice that even sometimes takes people quite a while to wrap their head around because it's so easy to just chant for your own goals and your own daily life. And then somewhere along the way, you start to realize practice for self and for others. But it sounds like you gravitated towards the others part quite <laughs> easily. <laughs> but um, you so you were like two years out of college when you started practicing, but when we spoke on the phone, you were sharing, and I guess you also share this um, on our recent clubhouse where you're now in grad school. So you're sort of back in school or, or entering grad school, right? Yes. So I'm going to start grad school in August. Okay. So very soon. And yeah. um, so the time between college and like getting to grad school, how did you come to make the decision? I imagine your Buddhist practice played a role in what has now come to be, but Yeah. Yeah. What will you be studying and how did you end up deciding to do that? Yeah. So I, when I was at Berkeley, I remember I always, I wanted to go, um, I wanted to get a master's at some point. I didn't know exactly what or how I was going to do it. And I was grappling with this idea of it's, it's so difficult to even graduate in four years and all of that. But I put that idea away really quickly because I think that that was my tendency and it's still a little bit of my tendency now, but um, it's when something, when I think I'm not good enough for something and it's just this big dream that I don't know where I came up with, I'm just going to put it away because it's even really embarrassing to say it out loud. And if I don't tell anybody and I never write it down, it never happened. So (laughs) I actually um, wanted to go to grad school, but I, never had the courage to and then within the blink of an eye 10 years went by and I was um I work for this amazing nonprofit and I the work that they do is so great and it changes so many lives that I felt you know I'm very comfortable and I love it here and I why even you know test the waters everything's pretty okay in my life right now but If you have ever been to a Buddhist meeting with other Buddhist practitioners, I think you could never leave a meeting without someone saying that you should dream big and that there is nothing you cannot accomplish. I don't think I've ever gone to a meeting where someone doesn't say you have to make the impossible possible. And um, last year in December, I had COVID. And my, most of my family did. My sister, who was eight months pregnant, had COVID, and her husband, and my two other sisters, myself. And my ev- thankfully, everybody is okay. And I think um, my symptoms might have been the worst, but I was in bed, and I couldn't get up. And I had like severe hip pain and leg pain. And I was in bed, and I couldn't even sit up. And I remember thinking, make the impossible possible. That just came into my mind. And I was crying because 
because not just because of the pain, but because I knew I'm not really going for my dreams. I have challenged myself throughout these last seven years or at that point, not seven yet of my Buddhist practice. I've challenged myself so much, but there's an aspect of my life that I haven't challenged because I'm too scared to challenge. And as I was sitting and or like laying in bed crying, thinking, make the impossible possible, I thought I have to apply to graduate school. If, if something were to happen to me right now because I have COVID, I would have that regret that I never went for my dream. I didn't do it. I, I was too scared. And so I um, had found um, this perfect program that is a master's in education with a focus on social justice and diversity in higher education. And when I found that program, I was like, this is exactly like who I would have wanted to, to find when I was in college. And the people that helped me graduate, like the advisors that helped me graduate, they were like that. They were advocating for social justice and diversity, but there were so few of them in this institution of like 40,000 students. There were mm -hmm. like two people that were like, either you can do this, you can graduate. And I wanted to be like that. I, I wanted to make higher education accessible for everyone, but also for everyone to feel embraced when they're there and for everyone to feel like I'm here because this institution wants me to be here and they care about me and they want me to be a global citizen that can change the world. And so when I found this program, I felt like it was made for me. I, I don't know if that's really weird to say, but I, no, I, I um, remember reading it and like crying and thinking, I feel like someone sat there and wrote, this is for Ivette. She's She needs to come and do this. And I, um, even though I was still struggling with COVID, I sat down and I wrote my essays and I contacted professors for letters of recommendation. And I submitted my application on December 30th of last year. And I remember that's when like my life really opened up because I thought if I could do this in the middle of like feeling so physically ill and also fighting that little voice that's st still telling me I'm not good enough. If I can get my essays together and my application, then what else can I do? <laughs> and so my friends, my friends in faith, um, really encouraged me to sit down and write down my vision for the next 10 years towards 2030. And um, I sat that day when I submitted my application, I sat down and I wrote so many things. And now when I look at it, I still laugh a little bit <laughs> because I can't believe that came out of my life. I'm just like, well, if anybody wanted to see like the biggest change in my life since I started my Buddhist practice, they need to look at this list because I, I didn't even know that that I there was in there. Oh my gosh. So yeah. while you had COVID, you applied. That's yes. crazy. So encouraging. So then after you applied, um, I remember you shared also on the on the phone and, and on the clubhouse a bit, just kind of um, the, the financial reality of what going to grad school looked like. So mm -hmm. how did you chant about that? And, and how did, yeah, how did you kind of pursue those steps? Yeah, I remember, um, when even before I received my letter of acceptance, I remember in early January sitting down thinking, 
if I get accepted, how am I going to pay for it? And, and then I thought, man, make the impossible possible. And so that's how I was, with that conviction, I was chanting on my own every day that somehow, no matter what, I was going to go to that program and I didn't know how I was going to pay for it, but I was going to pay for it and I was going to be okay. And, and I was going to make all my dreams come true towards 2030, which included graduating from that program. And I wrote down this goal that I want to be a chancellor one day um, of the University of California. And I want to foster global citizens. And what that means is just young people that want to change the world by acknowledging the greatness in everyone's lives. Mm -hmm. And so I began chanting that way. And I, in February, I received my acceptance. I think it was the first week of February. And I was told that I was selected for a $40,000 scholarship. And I was so excited because I didn't apply for the scholarship. I was just selected for it. And I remember thinking, I'm so thankful. And then I looked at my financial packet and I was like, oh my gosh, it actually costs about $150,000 to do this program because it's out of state and I have to live there and it's just so expensive to go to graduate school. And I was like, mm, I'm gonna have to take out probably more than $100,000 in loans. And I still have my loans from undergrad. And how am I, I remember thinking, I'm never gonna be able to buy a house because I'm gonna be in so much debt when I graduate. And I'm never going to be able to go on vacation or do the things that I want to do towards 2030 because mm -hmm. I am going to be in so much debt. And I remember having that conflict, that inner conflict of if this is one of my goals towards 2030 and I, you know, but it's going to cause like all these financial problems. Like, what is it that I need to do? I want to have the wisdom to know exactly what to do. And so I just um, kept chanting that way is was that no matter what, I was going to do what was right for me and that I was going to know exactly what that was, whether it was take out the loans or don't take out the loans and go next year. And as all of that was going on, I kept thinking of going back to like when I had COVID and thinking, but if I said that I was going to make the impossible possible, I'm like putting all these limits on myself I, at this point it's not even the amount of money it's just really me thinking that there's no way that I'm going to be able to do it mm. and then how did it how did it end up working out I so much was going on um the application the intent to register was due on April 15th and at that time I was going through a lot of things with my mental health and I finally had the courage to seek um, therapy. And I was going through a little bit of what we're doing right now, which is really unpacking my childhood. And so many things came about through my conversations with my therapist. And I remember getting to a point where I felt really scared and I felt I'm not gonna go to grad school. I, that, why did I even think of that? Why did I even apply? You know, like I went back to that place 
And one thing that um, some of my friends sometimes ask me because my friends know I practice Buddhism, they always think that because I practice Buddhism, I must be perfect and really happy and have no problems or that I can't be upset because I'm a Buddhist. And so I remember um, when I was going through that really dark moment, I remember thinking, Buddhism is about being just who you are and you can become enlightened just as you are. So even in this moment where I feel so scared and so hopeless almost, I can still win, essentially. I can still, I'm still a Buddha, even if I feel this way. And I, I ch changed my prayer to instead of um, all these outside factors deciding what I was going to do, I changed my prayer to because my life is immense and because my life is limitless, I am going to go to graduate school and I'm going to go and I'm going to take out those loans. And when I graduate, somehow I'm going to pay for them. And I'm not even going to have just one house. I'm going to have four houses. And I added <laughs> more things to my list. I'm going to have a house in Hawaii. I'm going to have a house in Canada. I'm also going to have a house in LA and not somewhere where I can afford it, but somewhere where I want to live. And, um, I went home and I accepted the loans I, and I did it with this like conviction of never giving up and making the impossible possible. And the next day was April 15th and I was on a zoom for work and I checked my personal email, which I usually don't during work hours. And I had an email from the director of the program and I was like, oh man, I wonder what they want. <laughs> they probably want me to hurry up and I'm taking so long. And I opened the email and it, it said that I had actually been selected for this really prestigious scholarship that covered my entire tuition for the whole time that I'm there. And it also gave me a stipend for every term that I'm there for housing and for anything that I may need. Like a full-on scholarship for my master's degree. Oh, <laughs> and, my goodness. And I just sat there. I started to cry, but I was crying because I was so happy. And I was crying because I felt like I did this. My life did this. Like the power of believing that the opposite of what I thought when I was six, that I could do something great and that I have the like it's in my hands to do this and I had never felt that empowered in my life and I couldn't wait to like share with people like this is what my Buddhist practice and chanting Namyo Horinge Kyo has done for me is I have this conviction that I can make the impossible possible mm -hmm. and so um yeah I'm gonna be leaving in August and I'm really excited and I'm also really nervous and scared of a real winter because there's no winter in Southern California. Um, but I'm just really excited to be there and to um, further explore the possibilities of my life. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Congratulations. I'm Thank so you. moved. It's yeah, this is just amazing. So maybe just to close. Um, I always like to ask this this to end, which is um, for for anyone listening who kind of might be struggling with whether it's imposter syndrome or just feeling like they're not good enough or like they don't deserve success or they don't deserve happiness um, or the world is against them, whatever, you know, whatever is kind of 
um, on their shoulders right now. Mm. What advice would you give to someone in that kind of situation who's also maybe curious about about Buddhism? Mm -hmm. I guess I would say to to start chanting Namyo Rengikyo. I think that if someone had told me that when I encountered the practice so bluntly, I think that I, my life would have been ready to hear it. I I think that sometimes we, I know for me personally, when I ask people to try it, I'm really scared that they're not going to want to and they're going to think I'm really weird and why am I telling them to do this? And for all intents and purposes, the people listening, I don't know them, but here I am telling them to do something. But really the best way to look at your life is to chant because it's this mirror. It allows you to have this connection with yourself that I think is the most important thing. I don't think any, I've heard throughout my life from some, some, from people, you're amazing. Thank you so much. You're so kind, or you have a big heart. And I never believed it. It even made me feel uncomfortable. I was like, Oh, stop telling me that I'm great. I'm not. But when I started chanting on my morning to kill, I realized that I believe I did believe those things about myself. And it meant so much coming from me. Where every day when I chant and I'm wanting to kill when I finish, I always say like I, the things I'm thankful for. I'm mm-hmm. thankful for the community and the SGI. I'm so thankful for um so many things. And at the end I always say thank you, Aide. And I never thought I could do that because I never felt that I was good enough and my Buddhist practice just gave me that the tools to develop that conviction and for people that are struggling with any kind of imposter syndrome or anything weighing on their lives right now is that is a way for you to believe in yourself that you give to yourself if that makes sense like nobody gives it to you nobody tells you like here this is how I'm going to solve your problem but you solve it for yourself and there is nothing more beautiful than knowing that you pull something out of your own life yourself. What I loved most about Ida's story was that chanting can be so simple. Just chanting to generate hope when you feel like you have none is such an amazing starting point to take the next action. And hope, combined with courage, is a sure path to help us make efforts toward our dreams and believing in ourselves against all odds. We've written a lot about this subject, so check out bootability.org for articles. And as always, if you'd like to get connected to your local Buddhist community and learn more, just email us at connect at sgi-usa.org. Also, ratings and reviews help the podcast get discovered. So if you like what you've been listening to, please leave us a rating or review on whatever podcast platform you are using. That's all for today, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.